You're an entrepreneur looking to fund your startup. How good a deal is a hedge fund? Clearly, there are certain hedge funds that can make a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And those are the ones that you tend to hear about. But they really have not had historically a return that has outpaced the market. In fact, probably stayed even with the market. And what's the difference between private equity and a mutual fund? Private equity firm is like a mutual fund where its investors are all institutions. And then they take that pile of money and instead of buying lots of shares in public companies and trading them, they're buying the whole company. When your attorney and your financial advisor are the same person. Lawyers ought to be really an integral part of a financing team. It could be product help, it can be advisory help, it could be just about anything. Our job is to hear somebody's story and try to help make their dream come true. What keeps your banker up at night? One of the biggest risks we all have are the cyber risks. It has become a much bigger problem than bank robbery ever was. This is the Language of Business, a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone planning a startup. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. Large cap, small cap, VC, PE, IPO, ROE, CMO. On this episode, we decode the ABCs of finance. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. You might have heard the phrase, that would be a good hedge when talking about controlling risk. But do you know anything beyond that? Chris Hennessy does. He's been doing this for over 20 years with his clients and students. And Chris, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks very much for having me. So what does a hedge fund do? Well, a hedge fund is a basically a pool of money. Some people say it's a mutual fund for the rich, <laughs> but it takes a pool of money just like a mutual fund would, but it's much broader in what it can actually invest in. Mutual funds are limited by charter. So large cap, small cap. Cap hedge standing for? Cap standing for size. Got it. Okay. Capitalization right. size. Hedge fund basically can do anything with the money. So they can do shorts, go long, they can do all sorts of stuff. Short would mean a shorter term investment horizon? Yeah, as well, shorter term investment horizon right. or thinking the market's gonna go down. Okay. So there's no restriction on what the actual manager of the hedge fund can do. They're less regulated. Now, they're a little bit more regulated than they were when Dodd-Frank came in, but they're much less regulated. And generally speaking, there are some publicly traded hedge funds, but not a lot. This is a private investment, and you normally have to be an accredited investor, meaning a million dollars or more of net worth and some income requirements. Most know what a mutual fund does in the sense it invests in other companies' stock, but how does hedge differ from private equity or venture capital? Think about it again as a pool of money, say $100 million, but it's going to be limited to a specific area, biotech, for example. Managers of the VC firm will maybe invest in 10, 15 companies. So it's much more restrictive on what they're actually going to do with that money. So that's the venture capital side. Now, private equity is very different. I've invested myself in some private equity. Normally, you're investing in one company. Sure. And you're an investor, and you're hoping someplace down the road that company's going to get sold or go public. You don't really know what the time horizon might be. Uh, and that's one of the other differences, which is interesting. So you have certain times normally in a hedge fund where you can redeem, maybe quarterly. You can actually get your money out. Sure. That's not so true necessarily with private equity or with venture capital funds. And again, there are many different industries where you can do private equity investments, but one of the big issues is dilution. So I go in early and then yeah, three years goes by, they want to raise more capital, they have another stock offering, so whatever my ownership is goes down through dilution. 
A hedge fund, by its definition, is trying to hedge against something, which we assume would be risk. Right. What risks is it trying to control for? Well, I think it's trying to control for the market risk. So we, we all remember very well 2008, when basically everything was down 30 to 40 percent. And the hedge fund is trying to say, okay, we want to not necessarily be correlated at all the way we're investing with the stock market. So the pitch might be, you're going to do well in an up market or well in a down market. I mean, Greg, I'd be really happy if I could get a 6 to 8% return year after year after year, regardless of whether the stock market was up or the stock market was down. And that's kind of the way the hedge funds think about this. They want to give you alpha. The alpha means that you're getting return on a risk-adjusted basis above what the market average is or above what some benchmark would be. You had mentioned that you were hoping for 6 to 8% returns regardless of whether the market goes up or goes down. Yes, yeah. How does that return compare with venture capital or private equity? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Kauffman Foundation does a lot of work with Babson where I teach. And Kauffman has a study out that indicates that only 20% of the time do venture capital firms make more than 3% a year. Now, if you go to the hedge fund return, one would think, well, these people must make a lot right. of money. They actually don't. There was a KPMG study that indicated that there's over a long time frame, they made about 9%. But there was another study that came out and said, no, 6%, which over this time frame was almost exactly the same as the stock market. Now, clearly, there are certain hedge funds that can make a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And those are the ones that you tend to hear about. But they really have not had historically a return that has outpaced the market to any great extent at all. In fact, probably stayed even with the market. Should hedge funds be part of a well-diversified portfolio? Yes, because again, when you go back to modern portfolio theory, it's all about diversification. You don't want to be too overweight in bonds or too overweight in equities. And by getting something into a hedge fund, you're, again, non-correlated and you're spreading that risk out. But the capital asset pricing model is going to indicate that beyond a certain point, you have diversified away as much risk as you can. At what point is there too much diversification? I think there's too much diversification when you end up owning individual stocks and you've got a portfolio of more than 40, 50 stocks. Then basically, you might as well buy an index fund. And that's the whole argument about active versus passive management. Why have actively traded stocks when you could just buy an index fund and be much cheaper. The best stock pickers, the best mutual fund managers in the world, they probably only have 30 positions, 30 stocks at one point in time. Are there circumstances where you would intentionally recommend or not recommend a hedge fund investment? Sure. If I had a client situation, and remember, they've got to be somewhat wealthy because they have to be accredited investor right. to do the hedge fund. And I looked at their portfolio and I said, you've got no alternative investments. You're highly correlated Whatever the stock market does, you're going to do. I might say to that individual, get 5 to 10% of your total investable wealth into some sort of hedge fund so you're protected against a market downturn because you're not correlated to the market. In fact, you might do very well. The hedge fund may make up in gains what the market is down in your portfolio. But why not timber? Why not real estate? Why not fracking as an alternative it investment? probably should be all of that. I mean, when you think about 5 to 10%, all those would be good alternative investments. So that, that's exactly what we think about. Commodities, oil, agriculture, timber, gold, silver. I mean, all of those could be in that space. And all of those could be something that a hedge fund could actually be doing. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Greg. Chris Hennessy, a law professor at Babson College. Coming up, using your attorney as a financial advisor. 
and your banker as your business partner. But first, the difference between private equity and venture capital as the language of business continues. Dr. Greg. Thanks, Don. The term PE, or private equity, is tossed around almost as much as a basketball is during a weekend pickup game. But what does it mean? Steve Siegel should know he has 20 years of investment experience with JW Child Associates and is an executive in residence at Boston University. Steve, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. So why is the term private equity really private? Well, it's private because the companies are private. So if you want to contrast it with public companies that people know well, those are companies where shares are freely tradable on an open market like the New York Stock Exchange, and you can call your broker and buy stock. But in private companies, you can't do that. They're owned by somebody else. If you wanted to buy a pool of public stocks, you would go to a mutual fund and you'd buy some shares in a mutual fund. Well, somebody's managing that mutual fund, and that mutual fund is buying stocks on a public market. Private equity firm is like a mutual fund where its investors are all institutions, and then they take that pile of money, and instead of buying lots of shares in public companies and trading them, they're buying the whole company. And they might buy 12 or 15 companies and own them for a longer period of time, try to influence the management, influence the direction of the business, try to improve the profitability, and then sell it in maybe three or five or seven years. If the companies are private, does that mean that there's not as much regulation? Let's break it down into two pieces. You could have a startup company. Those are private, too. So think of things like Facebook before it went public or Google before it went public. These are obviously well-known public companies now, but we all know them as private companies, too. So those private companies were owned by venture capital firms. Those companies themselves were unregulated. However, private equity firms today, because of some things that happened during 2008, we've gotten more regulated. And so private equity firms are regulated to some extent like mutual funds. The investors in a private equity firm are typically pension plans, endowments, college endowments, foundations, insurance companies, wealthy families. So if a wealthy family is invested in a private equity fund, that wealthy family is not regulated. But pension plans we know are heavily regulated. Because you rely so much on institutional partners, are the profit margins better at all? Profit margins for the private equity firm are excellent. This is where maybe some people will say that the incentives aren't all that well aligned. And advisors will tell you always to buy the lowest cost investment alternative you can find, particularly when you're buying public stocks or indexes. Private equity firms, on the other hand, like hedge funds and venture capital firms, typically charge a 2% management fee and then 20% of all the profits. It's very profitable if the performance is good for the private equity firm. The performance of the companies that they're purchasing. Exactly, the right. performance of the portfolio that they've invested in. If the performance of the portfolio they haven't invested in is very poor, then the firm doesn't do very well. True, they collect their 2% management fee, but they get none of the gains because there aren't any gains, and they've also invested alongside of their investors, so they would have lost money in the fund. What would the ROE be, return on equity be, for private equity as opposed to venture capital? So in a public company, if you don't like the investment, if you don't like the management team, you simply sell your stock. In a private equity investment, if you don't like the investment or you don't like the management team, you've got to do things. You can't just sell your stock. That's a big process to go sell that company. So the money is tied up for a much longer period of time, and it's considered to be higher risk. So therefore, the target rate of return is higher. Where do you see PE competing with VC? They don't really compete. There's some overlap. Certainly some firms will do a little bit of both. If they're kind of in the middle of that later stage venture, they might buy more mature businesses. Typically, firms have a very specific strategy, and that strategy will tell investors 
this is what I'm doing, so that the investor knows, okay, I'm locking up my money for a 10-year period of time or maybe a little more. I want to know what this investor's focused on. And where does mezzanine financing fall with this entire alphabet of finance? The private equity firms that are buying these companies are buying the companies with the help of leverage. They're using debt capital to buy the company, much like we would buy a house. You put your equity money down, maybe it's 20%, and then you have to go borrow the balance. Private equity firms do the exact same thing. They put the equity money down, and then they have to go borrow money. That money can come from a bank, it can come from the public high-yield markets, or it can come from these mezzanine financing sources, which provide junior capital. So when we go and buy a house, we're just finding one source of debt, it's the bank, and that's the senior lender. But if you're buying a company, many times the top end of that capital structure is stratified, and you'll have senior debt and junior debt and then equity. And so that junior debt, that's where the mezzanine fits in. And that mezzanine capital can be provided from, again, insurance companies or private mezzanine funds. And the senior debt would come most likely from banks? Typically banks, but they can also come from what's called collateralized loan. CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligations. Right, more of the alphabet. Right. Yeah. So what you're saying is junior debt would be subordinate to senior debt. Correct. Right. Steve, thank you. Thank you, guys. Steve Siegel, a former founding partner of JW Childs Associates and an executive in residence at Boston University. Your local banker becomes your business partner, but first, your attorney becomes your financial advisor as the language of business continues. Would you go to your banker for legal advice? Probably not. But your attorney can be a great source of knowledge to get your ventures financing done. In fact, that's what Larry Gennari focuses on. Welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. I'm delighted to be here. So why are attorneys suddenly in the financing business? Some think that it's a new thing, that they're suddenly in the financing business. But there's nothing new to this. Lawyers ought to be really an integral part of a financing team. And they ought to be part of the client's strategy for figuring out how to be successful. If you had to sum up what you did in a phrase, what would it be? I think, as you and I have talked about before, our job is to hear somebody's story and try to help make their dream come true. It could be product help. It can be advisory help. It can be connecting them to a financing source that makes sense for them. It could be just about anything, but it has to be focused on what the client really needs. What's more important, legal terms or financial terms? I think they're both critical. What's really important is having the client understand both. How would you help your client decode the alphabet of finance choices? I think the first and most important task for any lawyer is to help demystify the jargon. Financing a company is a unique challenge, even for people who've had a career in finance or a career in marketing in a major corporation. This can be quite new. And so helping people understand the legal terms, the jargon, everything from what's dilution to founder shares to any, an IPO, anything like that is and can be brand new to a client who's never done it before. So early stage versus growth stage, how does the counsel differ? The challenge for a lot of clients is that you can confuse jargon and personality and personal relationships with strategy. And for a lot of our clients, what really matters is how much do they need and what do they need it for? Does your counsel change as the deal size increases? I think counsel should change, and counsel does change, as the company progresses through the different financing cycles. When a company is brand new and has no revenues, its needs are different than an existing company, 
that needs financing or to think about what they should do to get to a next level. So I think it's more about company stage of growth than it is about a particular financing transaction or stage of finance. Does your counsel differ depending on the type of financing, VC, PE, or hedge? Absolutely, those are very different transactions and they fit very different strategies. Every client who is trying to raise money really needs to think about how much they need and where it might come from. For example, if they need 10 or $15 million, that's typically going to be a institutional investor who might be a private equity or, or venture capital investor. Nine times out of 10, what they really need is a financing strategy. There are many clients that you and I see who will initially say, I need $15 million to make my dream come true. And what you need to do is help the client understand that they could do a lot with a lot less than that. As you move to the second or third round of financing, does risk increase or decrease? The question of risk really depends on whose perspective you're taking. For investors, if a company's ready for a second or third round of financing, there's less risk. Perhaps they're established, maybe they have revenues, they have customers, established relationships with strategic partners, more acceptance in the market, there's less risk. For the entrepreneur and the management team, there might be more risk, and the risk being meeting the expectations of that institutional client. What's the number one mistake people make who have not sought a lawyer before they come to you? Trying to do something themselves and to save money, and they think that what they're doing is efficient. I give you a couple of great examples. When people promise shares or equity or an interest in their company and don't quite understand what they're doing. All you have to do is watch the movie Social Network and you'd be at a pretty good sense of the, the perils of that. I also see people sometimes execute contracts or use other forms that they may have found on the internet or from a friend. And the challenge with those is that they may not fit the particular circumstance, in many cases don't. As a result, they're gonna pay a lawyer twice as much to fix it so that the foundation is solid as the company moves on. I also see people make a lot of mistakes in the areas of securities law. When you offer or sell a piece of your business with the person's expectation being that they will profit from it, you've engaged in the sale of securities. Securities law is very complex. It's at both the federal and the state level. And a lot of people don't quite understand that you cannot just post your business plan online and ask investors to send you checks. Regardless of what you read about crowdfunding, it's a lot more complicated than that. And sometimes, when people have taken in money that way, that's a very difficult problem to fix. But how do you respond to someone, the fraudulent transfer of assets notwithstanding, who says we're just gonna shut it down, change the name, and start again? That may or may not be an appropriate option. Depending on what promises they've made to people, continuing the same business, albeit with a different name, may not solve that problem at all. Thank you, Larry. Larry Gennari, a partner at Gennari Aronson. Still to come, your local banker becomes a long-term business partner. Next on The Language of Business. If you enjoy listening to podcasts, and I'm guessing you do because you've gotten this far into this one, let me tell you about another one I think you'll enjoy. It's called The Story Behind Her Success. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. That's what The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry is all about. Once a week, she'll make your day and change your life by introducing you to a woman whose story is so powerful, you'll never forget it. 
The program host is award-winning broadcaster Candy O'Terry. She's been the Massachusetts Broadcaster Association Broadcaster of the Year and winner of 18 Gracie Allen Awards. Candy has interviewed over 800 women from every walk of life, so there's no stumbling around in this podcast. Success is so much more than the outcome. It's about the journey. It's a story of how you got there. So buckle up and go along for the ride. The story behind her success with Candy O'Terry available wherever you get podcasts. One more time, back to Greg's Tower. Thanks, Don. Does old school retail banking still matter in the rough and tumble world of big business? Barry Sloan certainly thinks so. He and his family have been in the banking business for nearly half a century. As the CEO and president of Century Bank, welcome to the language of business. It's an honor to be here. Appreciate it. On your website, the value proposition is customer intimacy. Right. What does that mean? It means that you have a strong relationship with senior management. I would define that, and I think this is true for any business person. Who's the most senior bank officer they know where they do their business? And if it's at the highest levels, I would make the case that you have a strong relationship, one that will last a long time through good times and bad times. And I approve every loan in the bank. And that's really the most important function I have. Because in that way, I know our customers, I know the market, I know where we can be helpful. People suffer all kinds of life events. And the most important thing we can do is to bridge them over those times. Your competitors are going to say that although decisions aren't made locally, they have a much stronger balance sheet than you do. How would you respond? We are A- rated by S&P, which ranks us at the highest level for a regional bank in the United States. And I would observe that if you look at the recent legal regulatory history of my giant competitors, there's very little to admire. Why are bank loans preferred over other sources of financing? From the entrepreneur's perspective, obviously there's no interference with your equity, right? And if you're building a business and you hope it's going to be successful, you'd like to retain all of the equity or you and your partners. Bank debt is just that. You repay us and you move on with your business. Would you rather trade an equity investment with little or no interest for debt? I mean, that's all about the basic judgment you have to make about the strategic plan of your business. Since you're all about relationships and banks are the partner that goes away after the loan is repaid, does that worry you that you won't have a long-term relationship with that client? Not typically, no, because first of all, there are all kinds of cash management elements to our banking relationship aside the debt. And also now with electronic funds transfer, mobile banking, all of the elements of receivables collection, a lockbox for companies with retail payments. We have so many things to work together on. So even if somebody's out of debt with us and we're happy, you know, for most businesses, debt is the enemy. We know they'll be back on some level, either because of their growth or because of circumstances. From the borrower's perspective, which do they perceive as being more risky, a line of credit or a bank loan? Typically, a business in its early stages where it is cash flow negative, they clearly will want to have both a term loan for longer term assets they acquire and a line of credit in place to carry them through receivables periods. A smart entrepreneur will want to have a term loan or a mortgage that has a similar period of amortization to the life of those assets attached to it, and a line of credit to carry them uh, through complicated periods when either their largest customer slows down their payments or something changes in their commodity mix or the inputs to their business. Do you think from the customer's perspective they would be better served having the line of credit and the bank loan at different banks? No. No, I don't. I think the most important decision you can make is who is going to be your principal banker, 
where you can connect to an institution of stability and strong ethics with senior managers that you can get to know, and hopefully more than one, that they'll be around for a long time. It's very important you concentrate all of your banking resources in one place. And the reason is that when we evaluate a relationship, remember, we look at the profitability of a relationship. If you break apart your deposits and your loans in different places, that banker trying to make a tough decision about your future and their partnership with you, unless they can see the totality of your relationship and they feel it, they benefit by it, they're not likely to make the same decision. It's a very important decision in any business person's life, just like picking your lawyer and your accountant and your doctor for that matter. What keeps you up at night about Century Bank? One of the biggest risks we all have are the cyber risks. It has become a much bigger problem than bank robbery ever was. Our systems protecting all of the electronic funds transfer, that is a major focus. It is uh, something you can never be too vigilant. And we revisit all of our protections and firewalls and processes all the time. We've had wonderful good luck, but we worry because of those exposures. Barry, thank you. You're welcome. Barry Sloan, CEO and President of Century Bank. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 43 countries. Welcome to the Russian Federation in 33 states plus D.C. Thank you for the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business. 